Good evening. Um, it is great to be here this evening uh, to preach um, what God has spoken to us through His Word. I'm very excited about tonight. Um, but before we begin, I would like to pray. Um, I always feel better after I pray. So let's pray and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that it is standing, everlasting, that never fails. Lord, I pray that tonight I would stand behind that, that you would speak through me, that I would decrease and you would increase, God. I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes to your words. Your words are living, God. They're as applicable to us today as they ever were written the first time they were written down, God. And that's an amazing thing. So, Lord, I pray you would sanctify us by them. Have mercy upon us as we try to understand them. Lord, and reveal yourself tonight. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Um, as the Christmas season is among us, I'm reminded how much I like, well, love Christmas. Um, it's almost as much as I hate the cold, uh, but I do love Christmas. Um, and it's not really about presents or it's about um, seeing family or, you know, hot chocolate or those type of things. But uh, although those things are great, um, I'm reminded... Uh, that I love Christmas because it forces me as a Christian to slow down and, and focus on the incarnation. Um, I don't know about you, but throughout my Christian walk, I don't really focus about the incarnation. I think a lot about Jesus dying for my sins. I think a lot of what he accomplished on the cross, how he justified us, but the incarnation doesn't come to mind very often until Christmas is upon us. I pray that as I walk through my Christian life, I would be reminded more and more, not just during Christmas about the incarnation, but about, about it all the time. So tonight, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to focus in, we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures, but we're going to mainly focus at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. First, we're going to jump back and read verses 18 to 23, or 22 for some context, just so we kind of know what's going on. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a man, just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
So Matthew had just begun his gospel, starting with the genealogy in verse 1 and following down. Matthew stresses the significance of Jesus' ancestry, that he is from the line of David. <clears throat> this is important because it makes Jesus qualified to be the Messiah, the Christ. So that's something that we need to keep in our head. The Old Testament had testified that this had to be so. It was a must for the Messiah. We then have the birth narrative, which is what we just read, where Joseph is told not to leave Mary because she is still a virgin. She was not unfaithful to Joseph, but indeed something great had happened. By the Holy Spirit, she has conceived, and she carries within her a baby that will be named Jesus. And we have a description of what he will do in verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. Then, um, and that's a lot of great things going on in these verses. Um, but tonight we're going to focus in on verses 22 and verses 24. 23 and 24. So, or 22, sorry, 22 and 23. So verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I have three points that I want to talk about tonight as we move through this passage. First point is God gives a promise. Our second point tonight is God fulfills his promise. And third, God continues to keep his promise. So those are just three things to keep in mind as we're walking through what God has spoken to us. In these two verses, Matthew does something that he loves to do, right? Uh, the narrative breaks. Matthew gives us a commentary of an Old Testament passage that connects the story that he's talking about with what has happened in the Old Testament. So this part of the text, verses 22 and 23, is not something that historically took place within the natural events that was happening here. Um, it is, however, something Matthew thought important enough to stop telling the narrative that transpired so that we would know this. He wanted us to understand, he wanted us to get this, uh, not miss it, right? This is very important. He stops talking about what happened and says, just so you know, this is why it happened. Which leads me to my first point. God gives a promise. Matthew claims, he makes the claim that all of this happened, everything he talked about, had taken place for a specific purpose. Now what, what is that purpose? Well, according to Matthew, it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then in verse 24, Matthew quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. So for us to better understand what is happening in this verse, we're going to have to take another step back and go to Isaiah. So if you would turn to Isaiah 
chapter 7. We'll be in that for a moment. We see a conversation going on in Isaiah chapter 7 that included the former king of Judah, Ahaz. Uh, king Ahaz was frightened because the armies of Syria and Israel were threatening to destroy the city of Judah. At this point in history, Israel had rebelled, all except for Judah. And Syria was one of the biggest armies in the world, one of the biggest enemies of Israel. So they were at Israel or Judah's doorstep looking for a fight. And King Ahaz was frightened, truly afraid. The, th the biggest thing he was afraid of was two things. The first thing, he was afraid that Judah would be wiped off the map. He was afraid it would be destroyed and it would be there no longer. Another thing he was afraid of was that the kingly line, the line of David, would be wiped out. The line of David that we see Jesus coming from in Matthew chapter 1, that God had promised to keep forever and bless the nations, would be wiped out forever, gone. Ahaz was frightened of this. So God comes in to assure Ahaz that will not happen. And he gives a promise. Nothing is going to take away that line. Nothing will do that. Nothing will wipe them out. And in ch uh, chapter 7, verse 14, he states, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God promised not only would he provide a sign or they would see a sign, but he himself would give them that sign. This isn't going to be someone else doing. This is not going to be man-made. This is going to be accomplished by God himself to give them a sign showing that they would not be destroyed, that the kingly line would be preserved. <clears throat> now this child, the birth of this child, would also show that God is present with his people and that he would not allow them to be destroyed. Um, this child, who he is and what he will do, is more and more clarified throughout the book of Isaiah. Specifically through chapters 7 and 11, the text really clarifies and identifies, uh, the, and we see the famous verse found in chapter 9. Flip over to chapter 9. We see the description of who this child is and what he will do in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <clears throat> this child was to be born was much more than just a sign. It was not only a sign that God would preserve Israel, the kingly line, but it's also a sign from God that he would be the savior, that he would save 
his people. So again, now that we have somewhat of an understanding of where Emmanuel comes from, I think a question that we need to answer is what type of promise this would mean to those who originally read it. How did the Jews of the Old Testament view God as being with them? How big was this a promise for them? The idea of God being with them of Israel would not have been foreign. Uh, God being with his people was a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'll read two passages from the Old Testament um, about this topic. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21 says this. You shall not be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is in your midst. A great and awesome God. The idea of God being with them for the Jews of the Old Testament would have been in times of stress, a comfort. But most of all, it showed that they were God's people and God was with them. It was a part of who they were, their identity. So God promised to send a sign. He himself would be that sign. And they understood that to have God among them would bring salvation. Which leads to me to my next point here in point two. God fulfills his promise. That is what we see in chapter 1 of Matthew. All of this was done to fulfill, to accomplish what God had previously promised. What he said in Isaiah, what he promised in the later chapters of Isaiah, that was done to accomplish what, what God had promised. Not only... Um, do we have God fulfilling his promise, but is in such a way that they could not have fully comprehended what was happening. One of the greatest mysteries that we see in the Bible. For the people that were living in this time, it meant that God was literally walking physically with them. While they walk and eat, in Jesus dwelt the fullness of God. I don't think that we can fully wrap our minds among this, even though we have the full testament. Um, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. One of the early confessions of the church. Great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is one of the first confessions we see of the church. And we still confess this to this day. Think to John chapter 1. We have this beautiful language of John describing the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In verse 14 he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This God that created the universe, that upholds the... Listen, without Jesus, the universe collapses... You take away Jesus, there is no universe. There is no world. Without 
Jesus, there is nothing. And we're told in John chapter 1 that that Jesus took on flesh to dwell among us. He walked among us. That same person came and dwelt among us. Now, I've heard this passage probably a hundred times growing up in America, um, as I'm sure many of you have. And I was talking to my wife today, actually after church, um, and we were having this discussion. Um, and I don't I think ever since we found out we were pregnant, uh, or she was pregnant, not me, um, that she was pregnant, that I've kind of looked at this a little different. That one day long ago, God decided in eternity past to dwell among us. That one day, he decided to take on flesh. I keep saying that because he decided to put on this. As a baby for nine months in Mary's womb, he dwelt. Grew up as a child with hunger pains and difficulties like you and I. Now, what an awesome thing in every sense of the word. Also know, as we're moving along, that the incarnation was not just a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, but like I mentioned in my first point, it was one uh, that was more, it was a fulfillment of more than just one promise. But it was a fulfillment of a various prophecies from the Old Testament that God would save his people. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. I think this specific scripture reference um, really hammers home the point. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 22 through 25. It says this, beginning in verse 22. I will rescue my flock... They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, and I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is not only a sign that David's line would be preserved, that Israel would not be destroyed, but this is to save his people from their sins. This is why his name is Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. We read that earlier this evening. God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. The purpose was so that he could save us. Listen to that. It's not a maybe, not a if you do this, but it was so he could save us from our sins. The Ezekiel 34 says that. I will rescue my flock. Matthew chapter 1 says that. His name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. God will accomplish what he set out to do. And he set out to take on flesh so he would save his people from their sins. He has accomplished what was impossible with man, the salvation of our souls. Which leads me to my final point. In this point, I want to try and wrap up some application because inherently it's practical for the believer today. 
my final point. God continues to keep his promise. In this, uh, so now that we know that God made this promise, God fulfilled his promise, what does that mean for us? What does it mean whenever I say God keeps, continues to keep his promise? Well, I won't talk too much about this part of it because Josh did a great job this morning. Uh, but now the gospel is for all peoples. That was Jesus' purpose, not only for the people that were walking with Jesus, not only the religious elite, the high class uh, during those days, but for anyone who turns to Jesus, they will find him to be a perfect savior, able to truly and perfectly save, because he came in human form as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because he stepped into human history, lived a perfect life, and died and rose again, Jesus is able to save all peoples. Another way that God continues to keep his promise is that Jesus is still with believers today. This is something that at least I don't talk about very often, especially not during this season. But the description of Jesus as Emmanuel does not stop being true after he ascends to heaven. It actually becomes, for the believer, believer, much more of a reality. Turn to the last chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture... We have Jesus Christ speaking with his disciples after he rose from the dead. And right before he goes off to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, he gives his disciples a great commission to go out to every nation, preach the word, baptize. And in verse 20, he states this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew is very intentional in the way he set up his gospel. This is not by mistake. Think about this. One of the very first descriptions that we have of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 is what? His name is Emmanuel because he is God with us. The very last line of the Gospel of Matthew is what? I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ promises to be with every believer who turns to him till eternity and beyond. The whole New Testament speaks to this truth. Listen, Romans chapter 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, not only was Christ walking physically on earth, he is now living inside every believer. He gives life. I'll ask you one last time, and forgive me, turn to 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1. First, I promise this is the last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. This one verse, I think, very much sums up um, a lot of what Christ does for us. So verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This one verse, like I said, sums up what we have, uh, what we've been talking about in this last point. And we could spend an eternity here. We are in Christ Jesus. We have all of these things because we are, we have Christ. The only good thing in us, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, is that Christ is in us, working these things, giving us wisdom, giving us righteousness. And I'll, I'll end with, with two final thoughts. This should lead all Christians to do two things. One, it should unite all Christians. We should make the main thing the main thing. And what is that? It is that Christ is in us. What he has accomplished for us. There should be no divide too big. No controversy too tall to pass. If two brothers or sisters are truly saved. If they truly have Christ living inside them. <clears throat> there was a, uh, a preacher, theologian, in the 18th century. Many know him by the name of John Wesley. And he died in 1791. And although uh, him and another preacher, theologian, uh, Charles, Charles Spurgeon, considered... They both considered each other a brother in Christ. They disagreed on some major things. Um, some things that we are still disagreeing today as brothers and sisters in Christ. However, Spurgeon knew that that was not the gospel. And upon hearing of his death, of John Wesley's death, this is what he said concerning John Wesley and his proclamation of God being with us. Listen to this, Spurgeon Quotes, John Wesley died with that upon his tongue, and let us live with it upon our hearts. The best of all is God with us. What a great reminder for all believers today. Not to get wrapped up in the small things, to let that be such a divide that we are not able to truly unite together for the gospel. If we keep the gospel the main thing and know that the best of all is God with us. And I want to end on this point and my final thought. God being with us should lead us to proclaim the gospel to all people. Think back to Matthew chapter 28. He gave us a direction to go to all nations preaching the gospel to all people, remembering, reminding us, telling us that he is with us forever. 
God being with us should give us confidence. It should spur us to go and tell every single person what he has done for us. That I was once like that. I was once an evil man. But now, because God has dwelt among us, and now he is Emmanuel, I'm no longer that. I'm a different person because of that. And it was not my actions, but it was God's actions. May we remember that. And during this Christmas season, not only when we sing Emmanuel, reflect on what Christ has done in the incarnation, but let it be a proclamation that Jesus is still with us to this day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins. That God today in every believer dwells with us, God. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, we just pray that we would submit under that, Lord. And Lord, continue to grow us. And we just thank you for everything you do. In your son's name we pray. Amen.